so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where I, I think that our tagline is basically, we're all really tired. I am, <laughs> as always, I am Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Joining me today is Karen Peterson. Hello. And we also have a very special guest that I'm going to introduce in a, a few seconds. But first, we wanted to kind of clarify what is going on with Kristen. So, Karen, you have a good grasp on this. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, we were just kind of going to let things stand last week, but I had a couple of people reach out to me and ask some questions because they were confused about what she meant when she said she was stepping back and handing the reins over. So I just wanted to, to clarify that Kristen has left Citizen Dame as a regular podcast, part of the podcast team. Occasionally she will come back as a guest and sometimes she will probably write some things for us on the website, but she is not part of the podcast team anymore in an official capacity. And uh, I am not the de facto leader. Lauren and I are, we are a team. We are a duo, a dynamic duo, if you will. And this is our show and we're going to do some awesome stuff with it. Yes. So just wanted to clarify that, of course, we love Kristen and, and we look forward to having her on every once in a while when she, when she gets an opportunity. Yeah. Like our big 100th episode is coming up and we're, we've got some plans for that. Yes. So. This is actually episode 90. Amazing. Can you believe that? Amazing. <laughs> so oh my God. So, but we are going to have a bunch of guests on, which is one of, which is one of the things that ha that is happening today. So I would like to introduce Nanina Gilder, who is, Yay. yeah, hello, <laughs> who is a good friend of mine and, uh, and is also someone who she's a screenwriter. She knows all kinds of stuff about film. She knows stuff that I have never even heard of. So Nanina, <laughs> how are you? I'm doing all right. I am very happy to be uh, on the podcast, having listened to all 89 of the ep previous episodes. It's quite fun to get to actually argue with you guys instead of, you know, yelling in my room. <laughs> I don't even think I've listened to all 89 episodes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm not certain if I have. I think I have. I've listened to a lot of them. I usually mm -hmm. listen to them the week after. Yeah. But yes. So, or, or I've edited them. So there's that also. So Nadia, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, why you're here, anything that you want to share with, with yourself, with the people who are listening to this. Oh dear. Um, well, um, I am a big fan of cinema and, um, I'm also really um into research and history and so i just as a hobby tend to go in deep on um various 
generally female filmmakers um, from basically the start of cinema. Um, and when I say filmmakers, I don't mean just directors. I really enjoy looking into the below the line people and the writers and less so actors. Um, uh, and um, I'm a screenwriter. Uh, you haven't seen anything I've written because they haven't been made, uh, but I'm quite excited. I collaborated with a really awesome uh, director this summer on making a short film, um, and hopefully that will be edited and coming out in the course of next year. Um, and, yeah, otherwise, um, I've known Lauren for probably 14 years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And we've argued a lot over those 14 years in very fun ways. Um, yes. So. <laughs> I also make really good coffee. That is true. That is true. <laughs> she, and she has regularly explained to me how the way that I make coffee is wrong or the way that someone else makes coffee is wrong. So no, I've never said that the way you make coffee is wrong. I've said that the way other coffee professionals make coffee is wrong. <laughs> You have given me shit about about drinking hazelnut lattes. Like I do, I do recall that. Um, yes, I, I did. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so Mindy and I have known each other for a very long time. We were at university together, and uh, and we also did a lot of film classes together. Um, I went and visited her, and we went to the Berkshire Film Festival earlier this year. So it, it's very nice to have her on. Uh, and we're just gonna kind of get into things first. I want to remind everybody, including myself. We do have what's in the bag contest is over and I will be picking a winner. Uh, that kind of got buried due to some other things that were going on. So we apologize about that. We will be announcing the winner next episode. Uh, and as a reminder, we do have a Patreon. So please subscribe, uh, send us your money, get some fun stuff as a result. And, uh, and yeah. So, all right, let's move on. So I think we want to start. We, this this episode seems to be mostly mostly about critics. Um, but so let's let's start out with uh, with Venice because the Venice Film Awards were um, Venice Film Festival is over, and of course the major winners at Venice right now was um, Joker, which won the Golden Lion, and Roman Polanski's An Officer and a Spy, which take which took the Grand Jury Prize. Um, and so there's been a lot of dialogue going on about Venice recently. There really has. Yes. <laughs> and and we also can't forget that um, also a major prize went to the new Nate Parker film, right? Yeah. As well? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so Venice, yes, that's also happened. They, they, they tried really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we could How can find... we make everyone hate us? Could not find women. We could not find women, but we could amazingly enough Award find two rapists. Oh, no. Find two <laughs> rapists. Know. Exactly. It wasn't that they couldn't find women. It was that it would be unfair if they invited female directed films to the festival. That was what that was what the director said. Yeah. It'd be unfair. Yeah. Because so, I it mean, would involve lowering standards, of course. Oh yes. Because yes, that's definitely. how that works. Always. <laughs> so so I mean it's 
It's a weird kind of it's a weird kind of space. So I mean, we even talked about in the last couple of podcasts how bizarre Venice was this year, um, and how they seem to be deliberately doing this almost something that, like Joker. I mean, no no one involved with Joker has been accused of being a sex pest. So we're all good. We're good about that. But Joker has been criticized. Yay. <laughs> good job joker <laughs> yay we're lowering standards here um but joker has i don't been- know though because wasn't some of casey affleck stuff happening while he and joaquin phoenix were making that not really a documentary true yes, true but, but so phoenix is kind of ancillary i mean i think we yeah. could talk about that who knows we might find out something um but so so, but Joker has been criticized for other things, obviously, and one of the yeah. issues that a number of people have had with it is, uh, that we've discussed before, is the way that it represents its lead character, the, what it's actually trying to say, or maybe what it fails at saying. Uh, and of course, the majority of human beings on this planet have not gotten a chance to actually see it. So we're depending, it's, it, sh- it showed at Venice and it showed at TIFF. So we're depending upon a, a relatively small subset of critics and of viewers who are having a response to Joker. The other problem, of course, is when you come to people like Polanski and Nate Parker. Uh, Polanski, who has, as we've talked about, has, has had, I mean, he, he run an Academy Award um, post the rape case. Uh, he has had all kinds of issues and continues to have all kinds of issues. But so one of the things that I wanted to ask about, I guess, is how we navigate this as viewers and as critics. Because one of the things that I was struggling with in in seeing the stuff about Polanski's film is that I really want to see this film as a film. Um, I also really do not want to support Polanski anymore. I, I you know, it's a, it's a bad look, basically. So how do we deal with that about a film that is getting awards, that is getting played, that might be in the conver- you know, might be in further award conversations and is eventually going to come out in the United States? How do we navigate that and decide, like, here's what I'm going to give my money to, here's what I'm not going to give my money to, or here's what I'm going to give coverage to? It's always such a tricky thing, especially... You know, like for me, where I actually work for an award site and it's my job to cover these films, it gets very tricky on where do I draw that line. And so I can't really answer for the average person, but I know that for myself, sometimes I just have to suck it up and do the job. Uh, I will put my foot down. I don't have to accept every interview request. I don't have to go to every screening, but if something's, you know, going to be, you know, probably nominated for Oscars or something, then at some point I have to educate myself, which means I have to see it. But in those cases, when I feel like I have to watch something that I personally don't want to for these types of reasons, because of who's involved with them, who made them, maybe what the subject matter is about, I just try to turn that off and just focus on evaluating the work for what it is and not not worrying about who made it. And also, one thing that does help me, like in the case of some Woody Allen movies, for example, I just think about all the other people that put their hard work into this and and focus on things like editing and sound design and stuff like that, where I don't, where I, I can still praise the work of people that, for whatever reason, decided to work with this person. Mm-hmm. I do think that, yeah, it's important and often gets lost in the conversation that 
film is very much a collaborative medium and it isn't just the director or the star making the film there it does get complicated especially with the director because like it's people choosing to work with them um though also people need to make their livelihoods um and yeah it's it's a really complicated issue and i i don't especially when it comes to um people not wanting to see movies because of an actor in it um and not wanting to support that actor i i'm like well the actor actually is a fairly like small part in this huge whole um and of course it's everyone everyone has the option of opting out of anything like no one has to see and everyone has their own line um when they're making this choice of the art versus the artist and all of that um but yeah i mean it's just kind of a complicated issue but i do think it's important to remember that not it's never just one person making a film um but then you also who do you want to support um monetarily and when it came down to uh with bohemian rhapsody i did actively make a choice um that i did not want to give brian singer money <laughs> um because i feel like it, people haven't taken seriously enough his his crimes and um and just use the excuse that his films make money to let him make more films and endanger more people um but yeah it, it's a really difficult difficult issue and i don't and sometimes i think people try to make it simple in just either saying oh it's just art and you should be able to completely separate it or you can't separate it at all and you should just avoid um problematic um artists entirely and it is somewhere in the middle and it's really difficult and i think that everyone is a hypocrite on this issue depending on how much they like the work of the particular artist as well and yeah it's so true it's so true i totally agree with that i think that there's not a one size fits all and i don't and i also don't think that's true for any individual person either i think that we evaluate these things we make these decisions on a case by case basis yeah and, and it's i don't know i mean i i've expressed before that i have i have my own my own issues with Polanski <laughs> Uh, and my own feelings about Polanski because of the effects that, that his work has had on, on my life and on my perception of film and on my love of a lot of his work. And, you know, Polanski is one thing. I have a much easier time with someone like Nate Parker, whose first film I didn't particularly like anyway, so I don't really give a shit whether or not I ever see a film made by him. Um, but, yeah, so it, it becomes this whole thing where you're having to navigate, like, I really want to see this movie, but also, like, I, I've, I've said before, I actually kind of am more interested in to see what um, 
an officer and a spy does than I am in Joker, which does not, as far as we know, have any uh, problematic people attached to it. It's just a problematic film within itself. So it, I agree with both of you. And I, I think that what we're basically coming down to is it's complicated. Like, we, you know, it's hard to navigate that kind of thing. And we almost have to do it on a case by case basis and our own comfort and our own comfort levels. It, it gets even more complicated, like you're saying, Karen, with not just what you're supporting monetarily to go to like pay to go see the movie, but also what you're supporting with your coverage mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, and I think as critics, we, we also push into you like, am, if, if by giving this film coverage, by giving this film attention, am I actually pushing it to a point where it might get an award because critics are paying attention to it and critics are talking about it and they're making it more visible to the public eye. You know, is this the sort of thing that is actually just going to die if we don't pay attention to it? Uh, yeah. Well, Nanina, you, I mean, you brought up Bohemian Rhapsody, which was something that I had to contend with last year. Yeah. It won, it won four Oscars. And in order to, you know, be true to being able to cover the Oscar race, I had to see the movie and I had to talk about that movie a lot throughout the months leading up to the Academy Awards. And luckily I didn't like it. So it made it easier to be like, yeah, this movie is bad and it shouldn't win anything. But if I had liked it, that would have been very tricky to navigate. Yeah. I do think that with an officer and a spy, just looking at the currently posted reviews, I have a feeling that it is probably going to disappear to some degree um, from awards consideration. Uh, Polanski really is venerated in Europe in a way that he's less so these days in the U.S. Um, and the I can see the way that European film festivals like to award him. I'm not sure looking at the reviews, if the film itself will be just so undeniable that um, the, it will cross over to a claim in the United States. I could be entirely wrong, but there is sort of this love of, painting Polanski as a victim in um, Europe, which has been a little bit more muted in the United States in recent years. But Polanski is such a complicated figure because in some ways, not, not in the ways that they sort of say that he's a victim over there in terms of the U.S. justice system and all of that, but he is genuinely a victim of the Holocaust and a sort of side victim of the Manson tragedies. And it, he, it's just one of these really complicated situations where just because someone is a victim does not mean that they're also not also a victimizer. Um, and yeah, it's just it's a really complicated thing. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that that's what we're all coming down to is that it's really complicated, you guys. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, uh, and one of the interesting things to me about this film is that this is a film about anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. um, and it's being made by a, a Jewish filmmaker who was a victim 
of the Holocaust and who lost his entire family in the Holocaust. And that's a legitimate, I think that that was one of the things that really, that made something like the pianist. So interesting to a lot of people. And one of the reasons why he was rewarded for it, it's a great film, but it's also, it's also partially about, you know, what we perceive as his personal relationship to, um, to the Holocaust. And so, yeah, we do have to remember that, that being a victimizer and being a victim are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, it, it's his, his Holocaust experience doesn't get canceled out because he's also a rapist. Um, and his rape does not get canceled out because he's also a Holocaust survivor. Exactly. They both exist. <laughs> exactly. And we have to make sense of that or not because it's impossible. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, all right. So kind of attached to this, and like I said, this, this entire episode seems to be about criticism and what the responsibility of critics is and, and where it is. I want to move to the brief Twitter argument that went on last night, which was partially very funny because it's two people that I really don't give a shit about that much. Um, <laughs> but that, that also actually raised some interesting questions in terms of, uh, in, in terms of what critics are responsible for, right? And what do we owe filmmakers as critics and in critical responses? So on Twitter, um, uh, a, I don't know whether I should really give his name. Everybody knows who he is if you follow film Twitter at all. Uh, but a, a fairly prominent, uh, white male critic made a comment about the uh, announcement of the new Suicide Squad cast. And his comment was not very friendly, not very nice. And the filmmaker, uh, David Ayer of the original Suicide Squad film, responded saying basically basically saying this this isn't really nice so that's really mean-spirited i understand the nature of your job and the necess- and the necessity to grab eyes but a lot of people dedicated their blood sweat and tears and came together to make the original it's incredibly painful to have two years of my love attacked in such a way uh so this kind of raised an interesting thing because i i think that's the yes, initial- first of all i think there's a typo there <laughs> <laughs> I think you meant to say my life, not my love. <laughs> oh, really? I think so. Oh, dedicated. My... All right, yeah. <laughs> I just think it's hilarious. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so, so this, this I think is a really interesting issue because the the initial the critics' tweet was not very nice. Um, that being said. Critics are not very nice on Twitter <laughs> all the time. I mean, you know, we. We do that constantly, like, and, and one of the issues that, that happens is that because you get filmmakers and artists and critics that are all on the same social media and that are all engaging with each other and know each other at different levels, you know, you get things like this where it's just like how, you know, sort of how dare you criticize or, or make fun of basically this, this piece of art that I've spent so much time on. Um, so I did kind of want to, I don't know how I feel about this. And part of it is because I don't like either person involved. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, where do we kind of come down on this where the, the original tweet was kind of snarkiness for the sake, for the sake of snark. It wasn't really criticism. It was, you know, this movie is shit and I hate it. Um, the original tweet though, and I needed to ask Claire clarification on, what film he was referring to because the the original tweet does not actually tag David Ayer or 
Suicide Squad, or I actually made the assumption when I first saw the David Ayer um, tweet with the retweet of the other guys and um, that they were talking about the sequel to Bright, um, <laughs> which honestly, <laughs> that, that, that there are a few movies that are getting sequels or reboots or stuff that were directed that aren't no one really cares about the next one i or i thought <laughs> well so, he yeah. did follow up though with another tweet to oh. say james gunn is very good at this and i'm sure two aside squad <laughs> or whatever it will be <laughs> a big step up but if we could all take a guilty until proven innocent approach to this stuff, we'd probably live longer and spend more time focusing on the masterpiece hustlers in theaters. Now. <laughs> oh my God! So I yes, he definitely meant suicide. <laughs> I know. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> anyway, so yes, he definitely meant suicide squad. That was for sure. Just say, just pointing that out. Yeah. Um. But. I, I feel like this definitely got a lot more attention because David Ayer um, decided to retweet it. Mm-hmm. Like, people probably would have scrolled by it, been like, oh, there must be an announcement of something. Oh, yeah, that movie existed. And then on. Um, I think that sometimes also on Twitter, people should just, Ignore. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, when, it comes, when it comes to this particular critic, I, my, my general attitude is just ignore. Um, that's mean. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't criticize you. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a good point. But I, I exactly. Air wasn't tagged. Like, yeah. so he obviously saw it or found it or he follows the critic or it just popped up in his timeline or something like that. And, and he felt the need to respond to it. But, like, you know, where so where do we kind of draw the line as critics and also as viewers of, like, making these kinds of very, ne- not very kind, not very, not particularly mm. critical pronouncements about certain things? Um, and what do we actually owe to filmmakers? I mean, I my personal perspective is that we do, we don't owe filmmakers anything. We do owe films something. Um, and what we owe to film is to take it seriously and to treat it seriously, even the ones that we don't like and even the ones that we find offensive. Like, I, I don't like Suicide Squad. I don't think it's a very good film. Um, but, you know, is is that really something that when the announcement of the next film comes out that we shall be like, oh, we every every human being on the planet hated that movie? Which is not true. If you, yeah. if you look at any thread that talks about Suicide Squad, there's always people that jump in to talk about how great it is. So, yeah, I mean, it was a hyperbolic statement, of course, which is what this person does a lot. But uh, I think I think you're absolutely right, Lauren, that we don't owe the filmmakers anything. We owe the films something and we owe the people who listen to us something which is to be thoughtful in our evaluation of something that doesn't mean that we can't make flippant offhand comments but we have to be prepared to back up our statements when we do if we're called on it and but i think that if you know 
we've seen so many times, especially in the last year, it's so weird where filmmakers are attacking critics for having opinions on their work. Yeah. And it's like, okay, if you can do that, we can say what we want about your your work then. You know, it's it's this weird thing. We, this doesn't have to be... We're, we have different roles in this weird little world. And as I, I mean, I really think as long as we're being honest about things, as long as we're being true, and as long as we can articulate a position, which a lot of critics have a hard time with because so many people just call themselves critics now and aren't. Um, but if we can do those things, then, then I think that it, it shouldn't matter even to the filmmaker. I mean, I'm sure it's probably... A little disheartening when you've put so much work into something and then people say this is not good or even this is bad but if we're being honest about it and expressing ourselves clearly then I don't think that we're doing anything wrong in fact I know we're not doing anything wrong and I think that if a filmmaker really stands by the work that they've done then they should be able to weather those negative criticisms too I think yeah. that there's also, though, a difference between negative criticism and just sort of snark. And snark yeah. can be fun. Um, I don't think that this one was particularly clever. Um, but, uh, and I am speaking not as a film critic, but I don't think film critics, uh, owe filmmakers anything, but I do think hum- human beings owe each other something and perhaps just going for a cheap joke is not always the nicest thing in the world. I also don't <laughs> think that Suicide Squad deserves very much respect um, <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, you know, I, I think that trying to not hurt people's feelings is probably a good thing also people shouldn't jump to being too sensitive about the slightest little hurt but there is that balance there and you know i think that people do need to be aware that there are human beings behind making these films and um and that they might be a little touchy at times because it is years of their life that they put into them. Um, that said, yeah. just because of that doesn't mean that they can't be criticized. It's just, it, is it actual criticism or is it just a cheap joke that maybe shouldn't, should be just between friends and not on a platform that the person it's about can maybe find it. Well, yeah, but I also think the fact that he didn't tag the yeah. filmmaker, he didn't yeah. tag the movie, and I've done that a lot, where yeah. I'll say something, I'll make a joke, I'll snide comment, whatever, and I'm careful not to tag the person that's involved, because then, if they come across it, it's kind of on them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I definitely agree with that, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, there. I think, I think, I, you know, this. All, all of our conclusions are going to be it's complicated. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think that there is a need, and particularly for critics, 
who have major platforms, right? And the, the particular critic that we're talking about does have a major platform. Yes. Um, I, I do think that there is a need just, just in terms of, not in terms of whether or not we're hurting the filmmakers feelings or not, but in terms of our own presentation of criticism. Mm. Critics have been regularly criticized for, uh, for being just snarky, for just, you know, being like saying whatever shit they want to and, and that, and that being seen as, as critique, right? Which it's true, it's not. And one of the, but one of the problems with comments like this, particularly from a, a critic with a large platform, is that it reinforces that, that stereotyping of critics is like, all you're really after is making the joke. You know, it doesn't matter whether the joke is a good joke, it doesn't matter whether the joke is a, an honest one, is, you know, actually is representative of your feeling. It's just because it gets you clicks, it gets you retweets, it gets you attention. And, and because it's funny, right? And I agree, this isn't a particularly funny joke. It's not even a really good joke. But um, that kind of, using that kind of, just just a lack of critical integrity, I guess, um, does does begin to lower the, the bar, as it were. And it kind of contributes to this whole concept of critics as not really being professionals, not really being people who like have valuable and educated insights into film, but just being, you know, more snarky bastards on, on Twitter or on Facebook or on a podcast or whatever. Um, that being said, the other side of it is that, and, and air airs whole thing of, um, you know, Oh, I, I spent, I put so much of my life into this and all of these people worked on it. It's just like, yeah, but that's not the point. I mean, you, you made a piece of art and you release that art into the world, and now we get to talk about that art, and that means that some people aren't going to like it, and that means that some people will, but we don't owe you our our validation in any sense. We're not just, we shouldn't just have to be nice to you or nice about your work, because it isn't specifically attacking him, it's attacking the work. Yeah. Um, because you worked so hard on it. Every single person who has ever made a film or ever produced a piece of art works hard on it. Uh, whether or not that ultimately pays off or whether or not everybody ultimately likes it is a totally different question. And that's not something that an artist can or should be in control of. I mean, I think it's clear that the real problem is studios allowing people to make bad movies, especially (laughs) white men. (laughs) If they would just not let white men make their crappy movies, we wouldn't have this problem. That was a joke, people. (laughs) Calm down. Not subtweeting anyone. Stop (laughs) waiting and making bad movies. (laughs) Then it would be so much easier. That's true. There are a few movies made by white men that are good. I just have to put it out there. Um, They have (laughs) made in the past, um, at times, there, there have been a few. Um, yeah. Just not the one that we're talking about. Yeah, that's besides I, I, the point. I, I, I just don't want to make any broad generalizations. Um, of course white not. Men can make movies. It's just you know, not all of them can, um, and not all of them should. Should. <laughs> uh, nor should all white men be film critics. Uh, and one of the reasons for this, this is a good segue. Woo. Um, <laughs> One of the reasons for this is that they get really fucking privileged. Oh my gosh, yes, they do. 
I wanted to make a mention of something. We don't have to talk about this for a lot of our time. I kind of made my feelings known on our uh, our website earlier this week. That was a great article, by the way. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Everybody go read the article that I'm about to mention. Um, so, so speaking of Venice, speaking of male film critics who maybe shouldn't talk, uh, festival embargoes became a topic of conversation this week due to, and I am actually going to talk about this because it's something that he published on his website, due to an editorial published on firstshowing.net by the film critic Alex Billington entitled An Open Letter About the Harmfulness of Embargoes at Film Festivals. And (laughs) subtitled A Human Rights Violation. Yes. And in this editorial and you can go to the editorial read it i am not misrepresenting this in any way alex referred to himself as oppressed he talked about (laughs) resistance and refusal and uh how embargoes are a violation of i don't know he almost said a violation of his human rights I, i don't think he went that far He said, uh, when you experience injustice, when you experience oppression in the world, you must speak up. Um, And he (laughs) He went on like like Rosa Parks. Right. Exactly. exactly. There's going to be statues in parks for him someday. (laughs) He went on like this for multiple paragraphs. Uh, As I said, I am not misrepresenting this. Go read his letter. We will put a link on, on uh, on the show notes. Um, so this resulted in some response and including my own response in which I, I mocked, but also pointed out the fact that embargoes are not a violation of your human rights. Um, but one of the things that really got to me about this was the, the level of privilege in this, this guy who gets to go to these big European film festivals, who gets a press pass. And the reason, by the way, for this article was that, Venice threatened to take away his press pass because he had broken social media embargoes on certain films, right? So, which meant that he was, for those who don't understand, who don't know the way that embargoes work, a, a lot of film festivals and a lot of films are embargoed both for reviews and also for social media responses. So you're not allowed to talk about a film until a specific time or specific date. Um, and they do this for a multitude of reasons. Some of it is just marketing. Some of it is, is the, you know, being able to get reviews out all at the same time, all of that stuff. Um, Sometimes so they this, haven't sold out the screening yet and they don't want people to not go see the movie later exactly. at the public They're, screening. And this is a very common thing at film festivals. This is a very common thing with press screenings. There are a lot of films that don't get reviewed or responded to until a particular moment. And you can always tell because if you go onto Twitter, suddenly everyone on film Twitter is talking about it. Um, so this is a pretty common thing. This has been around for a long time. Critics have been annoyed about it for a very long time. Basically what Alex is arguing here is that, that film embargoes are a violation of critical, of critical rights, of the rights of film critics. Um, but I did want to talk about a little bit, maybe, and see what you guys thought about this, because I said so much about it, about male privilege and about the privilege of someone like this representing himself this isn't unusual in in these guys representing themselves as being as having their rights violated because they've been told they can't do something well yeah i mean my first reaction when i read this 
when I read his open letter was, man, I really hope, and I think I tweeted this, I really hope this guy never actually experiences oppression because he will not be able to handle it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, dude, seriously get a grip. And, I mean, we see men complain about, you know, about things all the time. I mean, I have even had a couple times, last year at AFI, we had really weird stuff happening and they were really restricting access on things and I was getting frustrated about it and I was kind of complaining about it and then I was like, dude, chill. You're at AFI watching awesome movies for free. Who cares that you don't get to hang out with Nicole Kidman at the after party? Like, (laughs) calm the fuck down, you know? (laughs) And so I had to check myself, but but to sit there and, and... actually raise this to the level of my rights are being violated in some way is so ridiculous and and it honestly it just part of part of the real problem here is that yeah this is Alex Billington and a few other pretty much white men that jumped in to agree with him but the problem is for the average reader viewer listener they don't really distinguish who says what. They just see critics whining. And so it makes all of us look bad when someone starts complaining about silly things like this. Sadina, did you have any thoughts about this? I, I just was uh, very amused by the initial letter <laughs> and by your <laughs> response to it. Um, I don't think I have any nuanced take on it um as i am outside the film critic community but it was just uh i i just went and i saw that you had responded to it i was like okay so what exactly is this going on and then i started reading the open letter and i was just like are you kidding me (laughs) just co-opting all of this like um protest language (laughs) <laughs> for <sighs> something that is a minor annoyance. Right. And it's not like it's censorship. You get to put up your hot take a little bit later. Um, it's it's not saying that you can't comment on the film. It's that you can't comment, comment on it right away. Uh, yeah, I, I was just kind of mystified. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> heaven you. forbid someone should have to, like, wait a minute and really think about what they think about it <laughs> before they start telling people and locking themselves into an opinion. I mean, heaven forbid. I also loved Lauren that he replied to your letter. He yep. responded to it. <laughs> he, he thanked you for, for linking back to him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Making good yeah. points. I was like, Oh, seriously, dude. <laughs> that, that one was, I, I was very deflated after that. I was like, fuck. You know, here I went out of my way to 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 make this comment. I was I I think that I said on our Slack that I felt like um I felt like Louis Benoit did when uh when the fascists failed to protest against Shannon Delu. Like this this just was exactly what I did not want. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's really fucking pretentious, but that, 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 was, that was that was how I felt. I felt just like Louis Benwell in the fascists. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Anyways, I don't have a good transition for this, other than the yeah, fact really. that male critics we disagree with. Um, so but that's this, a good one. This, <laughs> this good is a this is another kind of interest 
interesting element that I actually have a lot of different feelings about, but so I'm going to start by opening it up to everybody else. Um, a very well thought of film critic, Matt Zoller Seats, who's, uh, and really interesting, really interesting writer, really interesting critic, um, began talking this week on Twitter about, uh, contemporary writing on older film culture. What he said was, I'm increasingly convinced that the purpose of most current writing on older culture is to establish that the writer is morally and intellectually superior to the thing they're writing about. And the editors don't care if it's ahistorical and in bad faith, if it drives clicks. He goes on to say, I watched old movie and wow, it was dated and quaint and offensive uh, to my sophisticated modern sensibilities. It's really not a subgenre of criticism. I have any interest in reading or promoting. Um, and this kind of, Again, you know, it was a bit snarky, but it was this did actually create some interesting dialogue and some interesting questions about historical context and how we, again, as viewers, as critics, as people who watch film just in general, um, how do we approach historical context and what is the appropriate way to approach historical context? And this also brings in issues of white male privilege and, and stuff like that. But I want to, before I give my perspective, I also want to open it up to everybody else. Did you guys think about this at all? Was this, I, I mean, we've talked a lot about historical context on this podcast and about a lot of critics refusing to take historical context into account when they talk about older films. But is it possible to kind of go the opposite direction and be too accepting of the history of a film and in in um, not allowing certain types of criticism? Well, I think that um, when approaching older films in historical context, you have to take the entire historical context into account and not just the narrow, most accessible um uh, way of looking at it, generally the sort of Western white point of view and, and often the male point of view as well um, on it, because people like with when Birth of a Nation came out, people protested. There were cities where it was not uh, where they shut down screenings. It was not an uncontroversial thing that people just sort of quietly accepted and said, and it wasn't that, oh, everyone back then just believed that um, having the KKK as a um, heroic force in a film, that is a totally normal thing. It wasn't, and people at the time acknowledged that fact. And so there can be sort of bad faith criticism that just says, oh, you just have to look at it in the context of its time and it was okay. No, racism has never been okay. And in, even in the context of its time, um, perhaps it was more generally acceptable, but that doesn't mean that everybody accepted it. And there are a lot of people, a lot of dissenting voices over the history of art that have said that things were not okay, that were still generally in the popular culture. And so ignoring those voices in assessments of problematic works is not 
productive because it just sort of pats ourselves on the back and says, look how far we've come. We're so much better than all of those backward people back then. So um, I do think that people need to be aware that of that aspect of it, that people have been criticizing problematic films since the moment said problematic films have come out. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what do you think, Karen? Well, I mean, I agree. And I think that one of the problems that we keep running into, and I, I kind of think this is this is more along the lines of what Matt is specifically referring to, although I don't think that he was super clear. Um, but I think one of the problems is we see so many people writing now about film, calling themselves critics, calling themselves film historians or whatever that maybe took a few, few film classes, but they've never really, either they never learned how or they just don't bother to do real research. They do a couple of maybe Google searches and find a couple of positive reviews on a film that came out in 1962 and say, oh yeah, see, everybody just was fawning this with praise and and so obviously this was totally acceptable back then. They're not taking the time to actually seek out some of the negative things that people were saying or were there protests happening outside of the theater? How many screens were actually showing this film? Was it banned in certain areas like you were mentioning, Nanina? You know, and like, I mean, I know I've brought this up because this was a really recent example that I saw just a few months ago, but when uh, someone discovered Heathers for the first time and started talking about how they couldn't believe that this movie was just allowed to exist in the 80s, and I'm like, you really think that this movie was not controversial when it came out? And it's because they just didn't bother to really look into it and to really read up on, on things that were happening, and and there's no excuse for that in this in this time because newspapers, magazines, everybody archives everything. There's access to all kinds of stuff. There are fucking public libraries where you can go see prints of some of these things and not just have to look at it online. And you can access all of this for free. So I I agree with Matt's basic point that it's really frustrating to see so much of this where it's just, well, my values in this modern era will not allow me to accept this thing that happened in the past when really it's just about people not bothering to educate themselves. And when they do, then you get to some really interesting conversations, discussions, and really great writing. Like I know Lauren, you've written some really great stuff to contextualize problematic films and it's because you do your homework. Well, I, yeah, I, th I think that that's, yeah, it, I think that that's one of the issues. And, and I do think that, that Matt, was focusing was particularly directing his criticism here at critics and um and people talking about them or writing about them uh who sort of treat it as you know uh as we're gonna we're gonna impose modern values and modern mm -hmm. perceptions on films without really taking into account the fact of historical context i also agree with anina that um you know that that this very often tends to wind up prizing 
when we take historical context, we shouldn't go, we shouldn't look at, at something like Birth of a Nation or Gone with the Wind and be like, well, people were just racist back then. Yeah, right. And move on, right? And say that therefore it doesn't count. It does count. And it, it is something to be critiqued. It is something to be criticized, particularly in the way that we venerate certain films and we don't venerate other films. Gone with the Wind is still a very venerated film in a lot of ways, in a way that Birth of a Nation isn't, as it shouldn't be. Right. Um, but, you know, we can't look at that and simply go, well, people were just racist, so, you know, we're going to ignore it. One of the films that I brought up the, uh, in, in the context of this conversation that I find really fascinating, I don't know whether the two of you have seen this film, and it's a film from 1933 called The Bitter Tea of General Yen. I have not seen it. it I've is been a meaning to, but I haven't. It's a fascinating film. I, saw it in a, I actually saw it in a film history class. Um, but one of the reasons why we saw it is that it's a Frank Capra film. It's right there on the cusp of the production code, right? So it's right as things are beginning to take hold. So the, and the production code is um, sort of being used to control the way that films are made and stuff like that. But it's a film that stars Barbara Stanwyck and Nils Astor. And Nils Astor plays a Chinese general. Uh, Nils Astor is a Swedish actor, by the way. <laughs> he is not even close to being Chinese. Um, and so he's, you know, he's got on what is fairly, fairly subtle. I mean, he's not being, he's not a caricature. Fairly subtle, but very obviously this is a white person in makeup. Um, uh, makeup. And he, and the whole relationship between the two of them is that they begin to fall in love. She plays a Christian, I believe a Christian missionary um, he is this kind of Chinese general in Shanghai. They begin a sort of interesting romance. And one of the reasons this one was incredibly controversial when it came out. And the reason why it was incredibly controversial was because it depicted fairly explicitly a developing romantic and sexual relationship between two people on screen, one of whom is perceived to be a white woman and the other one is perceived to be a Chinese man. And at that point, of course, the production code is coming in and the production code and the language that they use is miscegenation. There is no miscegenation. You're not allowed to do that. Um, so there is no such thing as an interracial relationship in uh, that period. You're not allowed to depict that on screen. And the way that Capra was getting around this was by casting a white man as a Chinese uh, figure. So this film has, on the one hand, it's, it looks incredibly racist. And in some ways it is incredibly racist. And the way that they portray Chinese people and the way that they portray General Yen um, is problematic. On the other hand, it is very progressive for its time period. And it's really interesting because of that. So if we read it from a totally modern perspective, we're looking at it and going, oh, my God, you know, the second you see those astronauts, you're just like, holy shit, dude, this isn't right, you know. Um, but on the other hand, if you're also reading it from historical context, you're you're able to talk about the fact that it it is progressive for its own time period, but it also has all of these racist and racial undertones that are not okay. So it's a really interesting film for dealing with that. Um, I don't know. I thought that the history context argument is really difficult because we fall into these traps of being like, we're only going to read it via history or we're only going to read it via our contemporary moment. Um, all film at some level, we, we read, we read backwards and forwards. We mm. read according to our contemporary moment and we read according to 
his, the historical context. So we're more willing to accept certain things in older films, I think, um, than we are in contemporary films. So we're not certainly now, you know, when you talk about people wearing blackface or yellow face, et cetera, we're not okay with that. And we shouldn't be the way that older films represent it had runs a whole gamut. And that always has to be included within the context of the conversation. I had a very similar reaction to seeing uh, Broken Blossoms, um, which is a D.W. to Griffith film uh, starring Richard, Richard Bartlemus as um, an, uh, Chinese, uh, a Chinese missionary actually coming to San Francisco to convert people to Buddhism. And it's a very sort of actually sympathetic portrayal of this fairly noble Chinese character um, who's complicated and there is a romance with Lillian Gish's um, uh, flower girl uh, who's being abused by her father. Um, But you have this thing of the yellow face of Richard Bartlemus playing a Chinese man, which is on the uh, face of it, it is a racist thing, but the portrayal itself is more complicated than that. Um, and again, it was running into the miscegenation rules um, uh, and not being allowed to show um, interracial relationships, um, which is really bizarre that it's okay if you're showing it with a white actor playing a um, Chinese person, but you can't just hire a Chinese actor. Um, and But yeah, it does get quite complicated in those contexts where the portrayal itself is actually, or the characterization itself is not negative and is often explicitly anti-racist, the, the subtext of the film. But the fact of the yellow face is explicitly racist and sort of trying to figure out the balance there. Again, it is very complicated. Um. (laughs) Conclusion of every single conversation on this episode. (laughs) It's complicated. complicated. I think Um. that we have a title for this episode. So any any further thoughts on this or do we want to move on? <laughs> I just want to reiterate, do some fucking homework, people, before you yeah. write stuff. That's all. And research is fun. It is fun. <laughs> it's so fun. Research is the best. I love <laughs> learning stuff. And you find out things. You find out about, you know, the you find out that many of the stereotypes or many of the perceptions that we have about um, earlier film are actually not true or are not entirely true. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. are more complicated than we thought. Right. Uh, <laughs> speaking of perceptions of films and stuff like that, it is still, still Female Filmmaker Month. And I wanted, we, we talked about this last week. I want to give another shout out to some female filmmakers that we love. I'm going to start out and say Penelope Spheris, who made, um, one of my favorite films, uh, Wayne's World, but she also did a, a a trio of um, documentaries about 
punk and heavy metal and the punk lifestyle called The Decline of Western Civilization. Uh, and all of her films are right now available on the Criterion Collection. So go check them out before they remove them because you know that they, they do tend to cycle out. So... Except Nina, for Wayne's World. Wayne's World isn't, is it? Wayne's World isn't, no. Wayne's World is not. It, it's, it's her more, quote, important yeah. films. Uh, <laughs> so, Nanita, Karen, uh, one of you can go. Do, do you have any other further female filmmaker recommendations? People we have heard of, people we haven't heard of, people we haven't paid enough attention to. Um, Karen, do you want to go first? Or? Oh, I was going to say, you go ahead. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'm just so grateful that we get a full month of, uh, <laughs> to honor female filmmakers. Wow. Um, but uh, one that I always bring up, and it is such an important film. It's such a gorgeous film, and it is on Netflix, so most people do not have an excuse not to see it, is Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash. Um, it came out, I think, in 93, um, and it is just this absolutely gorgeous dream world of this isolated Gula family off the Carolinas in, at the turn of the, um, 19th century um and it's just a sort of day in their life as they're deciding whether or not they're going to leave this very isolated island uh where they have their own culture and their own language and all of these things and move to the cities because there's no opportunity really on the island, though it's this gorgeous space. It's an entirely black cast. It's an entirely black world. Uh, Julie Dash was the first African-American um, director to get um, a national release of a movie in the case of Daughters of the Dust. Um, and um, it uh, is just a really immersive, gorgeous film with just images that stay in your head forever. Um, I do have to admit, when I watched it, I did turn on the subtitles because the um, Gula dialect is um, at times hard to um, understand. Uh, and... Some people say, no, you should just let it wash over you and um, uh, and you'll, you'll get it more as you go along. I personally found that I could engage more actively with it, with the subtitles on. And I do think that if it makes it easier for viewers and makes it more likely that they will watch the whole thing, definitely there is no shame in turning the subtitles on for it. But it is a gorgeous film and it is on Netflix and everyone in the world should see it. Um, <laughs> uh, and then um, in terms of... When I think about female filmmakers, I don't just think about directors necessarily. And at the moment, um, there's a new website has just been posted about the history and the vast history of women who have worked in editing. And so this... Um, 
uh, website is women, womenfilmeditors.princeton.edu, and it was created by Sue Friedrich. And um, if you haven't sort of gone in deep on the history of women film editors, um, this is an amazing resource that has just been posted. It has tons of primary source articles in the appendices. It has pages for each individual um, major female editor. Um, and uh, I think that a lot of people feel a little alienated by classic film because of the predominantly white maleness of the um, genre, but when you start looking deeper, you can find these amazing women who were genuinely involved in the creative process of making films, a lot of screenwriters and a lot of editors, and in addition to quite a few directors that we don't talk about very much, but um, it's a lot of fun to really find out about these women and um yeah and so definitely uh look into that website um womenfilmeditors.princeton.edu um awesome yeah awesome yeah female film editors like i I think women get really underrated for the amount of of contributions that they actually make to the filmmaking process Karen, do you have any female filmmakers, writers, editors, etc., that you want to give a shout out to? I sure do. And unlike the much more enlightened, enlightened Nanina, I just stuck with directors this time. But oh, that, that's good too. <laughs> but um, although I did love your thread, by the way, about editors, which I know was a repost from last year, but I hadn't seen it last time, and yeah. I loved it. It was great, and it just made me keep going. Like what? Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but anyway, a couple that I just wanted to mention. So, first of all, we all loved The Farewell. It's a great film from Lulu Wong, and her first movie, Posthumous, is now available on Amazon Prime. Ooh, nice. So, if you have Prime, go watch it. And it's, it's interesting, because the movie is definitely not as good as The Farewell, but I think that that actually helps show how much she has grown in her confidence and skill as a filmmaker to when you watch the the farewell and compare it to her first movie but it's also posthumous is good it's a lot of fun it's just very different and um it's really cute it's about an an artist a man i think they're in Ger- yeah they're in germany and he is accidentally reported as dead and all of a sudden there's like a rush to buy his art because that's what happens when artists die apparently. And so he just decides, eh, heck, I'll let people think I'm dead. I'm my brother now. And he falls in love with this girl who kind of suspects that something's up. And so it's a really cute story. So that is on prime. And then, uh, because it is getting into, you know, yesterday was Friday the 13th. We're getting into Halloween time soon. And so I've been looking for fun, um, scary and spooky movies to watch. And so I just wanted to remind folks that um, one that I really love, The Invitation by Karin Kasama, is on Netflix. Yes. So if you have not seen that movie, you should seriously go watch it. It's, it's yes. really good. Yes. 
Uh, and also, based on Lauren's recommendation, I haven't watched it yet, but tonight I am going to finally watch Tigers Are Not Afraid by Issa Lopez on Shudder. Yes, yes, everybody go watch Tigers Are Not Afraid. Please. So excited. I've been talking about this movie for a year. I know, I'm <laughs> so excited. <laughs> Is there a way to see it if you don't have Shudder? Not, Not at, at the, the moment. moment. <laughs> yeah, Make friends with someone who has Shudder and go to their house yeah. and have a movie night. Yeah, right. <laughs> right now it is. I think it's it's exclusive to Shudder at the moment. Okay. I mean, usually these things do move off. So like at some point Amazon might get it or something like that. Um, I don't know exactly how they're navigating that. And it is getting a uh, um, limited theatrical release, isn't it? Or I think it yeah, already had it, that. Yes. That sounds right. Yeah, it had it had that, and it might still be in limited theatrical release. I'm not certain. Okay. Okay. Yes. I, awesome. I, I actually just one more female filmmaker that I need to shout out, um, which is uh, my collaborator Cynthia Wade. Her documentary Grit um, has uh, just played on PBS, um, and it. Um, is now available streaming on the PBS Archive website. And it is an amazing, gorgeous documentary uh, about um, a man-made um, uh, em- environmental disaster in East Java. And um, Lauren reviewed it, um, and uh, you should definitely read her review, but it is an incredible film. Um, and Cynthia is an incredible filmmaker and, uh, you should definitely check out that, um, uh, and it will make you aware of, uh, disaster that will be ongoing until 2030. There's no way of stopping it. Um, and, uh, but it's not all doom and gloom. It's a very hopeful piece as well and beautifully shot, um, uh, so yes. definitely check that out. Yes, I absolutely. Will. Check that out. My, my review is up on uh, Citizen Dame, so you can look at that as well and go over to PBS and, and look at it. It's, it's an interesting film. Uh, so moving on just a little bit, we did have a question from a friend of the show, Jazz, Jazz Tanke, um, at Jazz T, and she asks, aside from Jojo Rabbit which we all know about, Karen. <laughs> um, what yeah. else are you looking forward to? And I'm going to start this out because I'm not going to say a lot about it, but I'm really looking forward to seeing Pain and Glory, which is the new Almodovar film. I love Almodovar, and this looks like a really interesting one. It's been getting some really good responses so far. So I'm looking forward to that. I, I probably will get to see that at New York Film Festival in the coming weeks. So, uh, Karen, what about you? What are you looking forward to? Oh, man. Um, what am I looking forward to? I'm not even, I'm not even sure. I mean, my entire focus has been on Jojo Rabbit all year. <laughs> I think, I think most of the other movies I've been excited about have already come out. Um, but, well, I am looking forward to Mariel Heller's A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is the Mr. Yay. Rogers movie. And, I mean, I really like Mariel Heller as a filmmaker, speaking of women filmmakers, and I'm very interested to see how this plays out, especially with what I've been hearing about the fact that Mr. Rogers is not the main character of this. It's actually this writer who's doing this story on him and how 
really showing how Mr. Rogers, as an adult, effect, like affects him who didn't necessarily have this big connection to him when he was younger, which is interesting because that's kind of my experience. So, uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, I am also looking forward to seeing the report, which is the Adam driver movie, which is a, the, uh, it's about the U S I did, I missed it at Sundance, but it's basically, he plays someone who's looking into, um, the CIA's methods of getting information from uh, terror suspects and uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 I've heard really good things about that and I'm actually interested I'm not sure how much I'm looking forward to it but with all the publicity it's gotten um, Marriage Story sounds very interesting so I'm kind of looking forward to that but I think besides Jojo Rabbit, the one I'm probably most excited about is Knives Out from Ryan Johnson, which yeah. is, yeah, it's like kind yeah. of a clue type of movie. And I just like the part in the trailer where Chris Evans tells everyone to eat shit. And how could you not want to see a movie where that happens? <laughs> I actually have yeah. not watched the trailer because I really want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way. It if I really want to see a movie, I don't watch the trailer. Nice. Um, so those are mine. All right. So uh, those are all good ones. I, I'm actually looking forward to all of those, too. So, Nanina, what about you? Do you have any films that are coming out shortly? Well, or Sort of like Karen, when I initially saw this question, I'm like, oh, are there ones? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I am intrigued by Portrait of a Lady on fire oh, yeah. I think. Uh, oh yeah uh i i don't know very much about it but that's definitely one that i'm keeping my eye on and wanting to um uh see i i'm sad to see that the joan didion um uh d reese film um uh seems to be moving to uh 2020 um but yeah knives out portrait of a lady on fire um and uh yeah those are the the main ones that i'm i'm looking forward to I, i'm sure there will be others as they come along and come out <laughs> yeah oh and the aeronauts <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i'm kind of absurdly excited about that <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> to Charlie's Angels. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I said this earlier on Twitter. I actually saw the Charlie's Angels trailer in the theater yesterday. And for whatever reason, seeing it on a big screen, I was like, oh, I'm actually really interested in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the moment when she takes her wig off, when Kristen Stewart <laughs> takes her wig off and Janelle Monet's. Uh, you make me feel is playing, and ah, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So uh, we're 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 running a little over, but that's all right. I think that um, I think that we really want to talk about this movie. I certainly want to talk about this movie. Did we all get to see Hustlers? Yes. Yes. Yay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so everybody got to see Hustlers. Hustlers is, of course, if you have not seen the trailers for it, I don't know where you're living. 
Um, Hustlers is a, a crime drama about a crew of strippers in New York City who embezzle money by drugging stock traders and CEOs who uh, come into the strip club. And it starts Constance Wu, Jennifer Lopez, Julia Stiles, Kiki Palmer, uh, Lily Reinhardt, with some very enjoyable cameos by Lizzo and Cardi B. Uh, I'm just gonna, I mean, I'm just gonna say, I went to see this movie yesterday. Uh, there were two teenage girls on one side of me who were absolutely into this film. They were so fucking happy to be there <laughs> and having such a great time. On the other side of me was a man tattooed from head to foot. Like, every single visible portion of his body was tattooed. And then right next to him were two Chinese teenagers who talked in Chinese at the beginning of the film and then quieted down everything. And everyone in that movie theater was into it. Um, it was just a really awesome experience. And uh, and it's it's a great film. This is... I do not know how... A man could have made this film. This was directed by um, Lorene Scafaria. Uh, it's it's just a fantastic film. It's so well acted. It's funny. It's entertaining. The way that it is filmed, you know, we've talked about the female gaze on this podcast before. This is the female gaze. This is approaching strippers from a perspective, from a much more feminized perspective than you would expect in pretty much any other film that I've seen about strippers, not that there are tons of them. Uh, Jennifer Lopez is fantastic. I don't know. People are talking about, you know, Oscars and stuff like that. I don't know about that, but she really does give a great performance. She reminds us that she is a great actress. Uh, Constance Wu is also wonderful, and, and particularly the relationship between their two characters and the way that it develops and just the the friendship and the camaraderie and the closeness um, between them and really between everybody. Like there's one of my favorite scenes in the entire film was an early scene in the dressing room of the strip club. And it's all of these women in various states of undress or, you know, wearing almost nothing, just talking with each other and joking and laughing and making, you know, ridiculous comments and, and eating cake. Uh, <laughs> and just all of that was just so wonderful to see on screen and it's such a well-done, intelligent, funny film. Like, I really cannot recommend it enough. I had a great time. Um, Karen, Nanina, one of you can start. What did you think about Hustlers? Do you want to go first, Nanina? Um, well, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I uh, felt that it was a different take on strippers. I don't think that I would have been interested in seeing it at all if it had been directed by a man actually yeah um because we've seen that movie and um i think that it definitely worked hard to show the point of view from the um show show the point of view of people that we are used to having being looked at and yeah. having the the way they see things and their look and the um way that they are seeing the clients at the strip club and all of that was very well done um i think that it was a lot of fun and what i liked about it 
was that so often in films we only really get to see women either as the Madonna or the whore and the lines of sort of complexity of um, you, you don't get that as much as you get with male characters where you're allowed to see male characters do things that aren't good, but also still be intrigued by them and um, be sympathetic to them. The whole anti-hero thing. We don't get that as much with women and what these women are doing, like drugging people without their consent is on its surface, it is not a good thing, and I don't think it is being celebrated in this. Um, but you're allowed to see it through their eyes and see women that you are allowed to be sympathetic to while not necessarily condoning everything that they do and allowing them to have fun but also not be necessarily heroes. And I think that Jennifer Lopez is fantastic in it, in um, showing this very charismatic, very magnetic person who in many ways does very good things for her friends, but also does have this dark side, which allows you to believe that she would come up with this plan and would be able to dehumanize people to the point where she can just um, drug them because of her experiences and that you can't isolate their experiences as being considered being objectified and being considered objects by these men in turn them treating these men as objects which is definitely a criminal act that they are doing and should not be endorsed but it is also shown with nuance and complexity um so i enjoyed it <laughs> Karen, what did you think? I also enjoyed it. I think it's very entertaining. I think that it's beautifully shot. And um, I think some of the cinematography was just really exceptional. The performances, like everybody said, are really, really good. Jennifer Lopez, I mean, she's a good actress. And I don't know why people keep trying to act like she's not. I've never understood that. Um, but... Uh, oh, and yeah, what you're saying to Lauren, you mentioned the female gaze. If you want to understand the difference between male gaze and female gaze, look at this film and look at, just just grab some still shots of this film side by side with like striptease or showgirls or mm -hmm. some of those movies, and you'll understand the difference because this is definitely one where nudity is part of the world that they're in but it's not the point of any shot that is composed at any point in this film and I think that that's really important I like the fact that the men have <laughs> basically nothing that, like so many of the men that even appear in this movie barely have lines of dialogue and they're all douchebags and and uh, I'm sure some guys that go to strip clubs are not terrible monsters but uh, I like the fact that it's just kind of like yeah these guys just they're idiots and you know <laughs> I think where 
where I struggled a little bit was that because I don't I didn't think this was a perfect movie and that's okay films don't have to be perfect to be enjoyable and and to be good and to have reasons to celebrate them and this is a perfect example of that but I, I think for me I never got anything and please tell me if there's something that you feel like I'm missing on this both of you but I never felt like this was much deeper than just showing us what happened because this is inspired by by true events this is you know, based on real people that did these things. And I never got the sense that it was really doing anything more than just showing the facts. I mean, you see these beautiful female relationships, which I think are are really good, but I didn't really know much about who any of these people were. You get little snippets of like, oh, this tragic thing happened in her life. And oh, this is kind of her backstory. But like, how did any of them end up at that club in the first place? What was it that, that brought them all there? Um, and what what was it that really made them go along with this plan? Was it just because they needed money or was there more to it than that? And I never felt like I got a true sense of of that, even though I'm sure there was depth intended. I just never really saw it myself. But I mean, it's I... good. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I'm going to tell you that you're wrong. Okay. Uh, Please that's do. What no, no, <laughs> I, I understand where you're getting in. And I, I agree that, that there, there isn't a great deal of backstory. You don't really get, and it's not really about their backstory. It, right. it does pick up right when, um, uh, destiny, the Constance Wu character becomes sort of a member of this strip club. And, and it proceeds kind of outward from that. And you do get a little bit of her background. And I think it is more about the way that these friendships develop. Up and particularly the relationship between her and um, Ramona, uh, the, the Jennifer Lopez character. But I do think that there is a lot of depth, and I, I do think that maybe sometimes the film communicates it almost too much um, in that, you know, that we're all hustlers. We're, that's what this whole country is. And I think that one of the interesting things that I found was that it uses the recession as, like, it doesn't just show what happens to, you know, it isn't about what happens to the rich guys in the recession or what it happens to the, you know, everybody during the recession, but the ripple effect that that has on these women who are dependent on wall street money, basically, mm-hmm. uh, in order to continue to function. And so there, the argument is, well, we're, you know, we're going to turn to a life of crime. Basically they're not criminals before that. Right. Uh, we're going to turn to a life of crime because that's the only way that we know how to survive. And so I do think that the film does have a lot to say at that level about, um, about exploitation mm-hmm. and about the way that particularly women are, are exploited and are dependent on certain things. One of the things that, that is a constant refrain from destiny is I just want to, to not be beholden to anyone. I don't want to be dependent on anyone, but of course she is dependent. She's constantly dependent. She's dependent on, the men who give her money, she's dependent upon continuing to be attractive to them and to know how to be attractive to them. She's dependent on Ramona. She's dependent on all of these, all of these choices that she has to make are dependent upon these people that have more money than she does. And that she really only has the ability to, that this is really the only thing that she can do. And there, there's a scene where like she tries to go and get a retail job and, the woman says to her, well, you don't have any retail experience. And she's like, well, 
that's why I'm here. How do you get retail experience when you don't yeah. have any retail experience? You know, and I think that the film does a lot with that in developing those levels of exploitation and in explaining why these women then go to this extreme of being like, and how they justify it also of how are we going to survive in this world that is essentially saying like, we are only as good as our bodies. And even those are, might not be lucrative enough to keep, to keep us alive, to keep us, you know, comfortable to, you know, be able to send our kids to school and all of that and how that kind of spirals outward from that. So I, yeah, I disagree. I think that there is a depth to this film that is, um, that is easy. It's easy to miss. Uh, but I, I, yeah, that's what okay. I <laughs> well, I, I, okay. Some of the things that you're talking about. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And, and that wasn't even exactly what I was referring to. Although I guess I see that I was not, clear enough in what I was talking about but I think for okay. me it, it wasn't it wasn't um their it wasn't their motivation so much that I was lost on because I totally got it I mean I think they did a really good job of showing that these men were trash and they treated these women like trash and um and I think that it's one of the things I really appreciated about what is done here is the fact that there's so one thing that drives me crazy in movies is when they spend so much time telling you stuff instead of showing you and this really really found good ways to show the way the men were treating these women and how the women fish you know you could see how they how they reacted to that without having to hear about it you could see someone looking you know just crestfallen someone looking just completely degraded and I think that those things were really well done I guess for me where where it kind of lost me was in the actual manner of their crimes and so much of of what I felt as we were seeing those things especially like what Nanina was talking about where they're actually assaulting people it felt like there was just kind of the shrug of well yeah this is happening and there's only one time where I felt, and it's toward the end, and I don't want to give anything away, but there's only one time where I felt anyone having any sort of real moment to pause and question what they were doing. And it wasn't even that much, and it just kind of got brushed aside. And I think that's where I really struggled a little bit, was in not a refusal to take a side, because I think it's obvious that it's not right what they're doing, but just not really seeing from the women um, either either a really strong sense of we're right, they deserve this, or wow, yeah, this is kind of bad what we're doing. I felt like it was, that's where I felt like it was really just kind of a presentation of the fact. I, I think that um, where, and I agree on some level with that, but I think that the amount in the first half where you see the women getting objectified by the men and degraded, it, you can understand a certain numbing and a line being mm -hmm. drawn between these two sets of people who in turn are just objectifying each other. Um, and of course, we don't know if the exact men that they uh, robbed and assaulted are men that would do that exact same thing to them. And some of them, you do get the sense, 
aren't, while others you get the sense are. Either way, it is emphatically wrong to ever drug someone without their consent. <laughs> yes. But just these sort of cycles of abuse um, getting shown um, and how that complicates people's moral compasses and makes them feel like they're doing something just when what they are doing is unjust, but because they have been part of an unjust system for so long that their compass is askew and they're just wanting to try to push the um, scales back in their direction. Um, and um, I do think that there are moments where characters do question what they're doing, but I agree that it isn't a big part of the film, but I think that as a responsible audience member, you're still invited to question it while also enjoying the ride. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I don't, I never sat there and felt bad for pretty much any of it. Well, there was one guy I kind of felt I, bad for. I felt bad yeah. for two. <laughs> Maybe two. Um, but yeah, but for the most part, it's like, eh, I, I guess I was kind of doing a little shrugging too, but <laughs> to be honest, but yeah. What were you well, going to say? I, 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 no, I disagree with Nanina. I, I, I agree with Nanina. I think <laughs> that um, it's, it's, a, it's a cycle of exploitation and they are involved in, in a world where that's what life is. Um, and they are essentially like, okay, well, these guys are exploiting us. We're going to exploit them and we're going to use their weakness, um, against them in order to obtain what we want, which is money, uh, because we can't, we can't find another way to do it. So yeah, so she, Nanina basically said what I was going to say. So. <laughs> yeah. So any, any final thoughts about Hustlers? Go see it. It's still, I mean, not it's still worth watching. It's definitely worth watching. I like I said I had a couple of just little eh, but it's a great film. You should definitely watch it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that that finally closes us out. Like this has been a wonderful conversation. And Nina, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. It's been fun hanging out with you guys. <laughs> And and as per usual, there are many ways to listen to Citizen Dame, to follow us, to talk to us. Um, we are, of course, on Podbean at, uh, what are we, citizendame.podbean.com. We are also on iTunes and or whatever it is now, Apple Podcasts. Um, and we are on Spotify. You can find us on Twitter at uh, Citizen Dame Pod, on Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. Uh, we still have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash citizen dame. You can email us uh, with your questions, arguments, I don't know, harassment that we can then read on air and call you names for. Uh, that's uh, citizen dame pod at gmail.com. Our website is, of course, citizen dame where we have reviews and the podcast itself and editorials and fun things. We are going to be putting up more stuff on there as well. And give us your money. We love money. Yay, money. <laughs> we are hustling. We are hustling. <laughs> <laughs> we won't drag you, though. <laughs> <laughs> in, 
in our own way. We are on patreon.com uh, slash citizen dame. And for the price of $1 a month, you can support us and anything above that. And you get access to our episodes early. You get pins. You get fun stuff. And we're also going to be adding some more bonus episodes and stuff like that. So fear not. We are still here. Uh, you can also go to our Zazzle store at zazzle.com slash citizen dame where we have some merch. There's some merchandise that I kind of want to put up uh, that I will hopefully get to within the next couple of weeks or so. Um, and we also have a Ko-Fi if you just want to give us a couple of bucks but not make any major commitment. That's ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. And, of course, you can follow us all on Twitter. I am at LHBusiness. Karen, where are you? I am at Karen M. Peterson. And our friend Nanina Gilder, where are you? I'm at Nanina Gilder. <laughs> we like to keep it hard to spell. <laughs> <laughs> Very straightforward. Uh, thank you so much for being on, Nanina. It was lovely talking with you. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. We will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so.